This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howey, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers brought to you by the Fur Bearers. I have watched a lot of content in the last year and a half, but little of it has hit me in the heart and mind as thoughtfully and powerfully as the Oscar-nominated animated feature Wolf Walkers. I'll rewind briefly. Earlier this year, friends of mine, Christopher and Cynthia of the Not About Lumberjacks podcast, suggested that I try connecting with a filmmaker they knew, Tom Moore. He's an environmentalist, has made these incredible films, and is an all-around interesting fellow, they said. A great interview for Defender Radio. So, while connecting with Tom and his team at Cartoon Saloon to arrange the chat, I immersed myself in his work, namely the trio of Irish folklore-based films he'd helped create. All of the films are outstanding, and I, strong, and I strongly recommend them. But Wolfwalkers leapt off the screen for me. By, by the way, there's spoilers ahead, so spoiler alert. Wolfwalkers is described by IMDB.com as the tale of a young apprentice hunter and her father journeying to Ireland to help wipe out the last wolf pack. But everything changes when she befriends a free-spirited girl from a mysterious tribe rumored to transform into wolves by night. The depth of characters, themes, and the sheer beauty and vision in the artwork of Wolfwalkers is astounding. It was an amazing opportunity to sit and chat with Tom about the environment, traditional ecological knowledge, how storytelling brings together generations of people who can all see themselves in characters, and ways of moving forward in the world together. But rather than tell you more about it, let's just have a listen. Remember to follow me on Instagram and TikTok at HowieMichael for some cool behind-the-scenes stuff like what Tom was sketching during the first half of this interview. I thought an interesting place to start would be back around 2001. I was doing some reading about yourself and your partners behind Cartoon mm-hmm. Saloon um, and the evolution of getting to The Secret of the Kells, which mm-hmm. is kind of the the project that launched a lot of these other projects we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. So if, if we could spend just a, a few minutes looking at that, what was it like in 2001? You're sitting around mm-hmm. wanting to do something different or, or wanting mm-hmm. to take on some of these uh, converging passions. What was that, uh, part of life? Like, what was that process for those first few years? Yeah, it was pretty crazy. Like we just graduated, um, in 1999, 2000 from college and we'd, uh, a lot of our classmates, um, had kind of gotten into video games because there was the explosion of Tomb Raider and a lot of the 2D studios in Ireland had closed down or moved back to the States. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people were kind of retraining in their final year of college in CG. But at the same time, you know, stuff had come out like Mulan and we discovered stuff like Richard Williams, Stephen the Cobbler. And we were looking at like some attempts had been made to incorporate like, um, what's the word? like traditional art forms into hand-drawn animation. And we were kind of excited by that. You know, that uh, Mulan had some sort of Chinese brush painting in it and mm-hmm. the Thief and the Cobbler looked like a Persian miniature. So we were like, if we could do something like that with Irish art, wouldn't it be cool? And also, wouldn't it be nice if we could continue this kind of college vibe that a lot of us were on just a bit longer? Like, I think we were trying to, I think the feeling was that we could 
probably naively imagined that we could make something that would be cool and then we'd go and get real jobs, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and we were kind of idealistic. We thought we could do something interesting, excuse me, with, I suppose, Irish art or Celtic art in quotes before, you know, Disney or somebody else kind of got to it. Because at the time it seemed like they were doing like Greek inspired stuff with Hercules, oh, yeah. Chinese inspired stuff with Mulan. And, you know, they'd done the hunchback here in Paris and stuff. So we thought we could do something. And originally, I don't even think we thought it would be a feature. I think we originally thought we could pitch it as some kind of, you know, extended short film, like a TV special or something. But it just sort of grew. And the studio was kind of an extension of Young Irish Filmmakers in Kilkenny, where I grew up. I'd been a member of Young Irish Filmmakers, which was like a group that was set up in the 90s for, ostensibly for kids to use the equipment to make their own films. But it sort of was also a very, you know, progressive, nice place for kind of arty kids to hang out if they weren't sporty or whatever. And so whenever they offered us the space and a small grant to try and make our make our idea, that's sort of when the snowball started rolling, really, yeah. Yeah, and it's, um, uh, speaking of, quick plug, The Fur Bears currently has an arts grant that will help people promote coexistence methods. Find out more at thefurbears.com. Now that I'm going to get nice. paid again for the week, um, <laughs> I, I did read, and this I found this enjoyable um, in that it it, it is... The story none of us want to be true, but becomes true. While attempting to make your dream projects, you all went out and got kind of boring jobs to pay the bills. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like that's the universal story yeah. of yeah. when you like you have to pay the bills. You have to get through. You know, when I was trying to get into newspaper business, I had jobs at fast food restaurants and delivering pizza. And oh yeah, between those, you're sitting down with a notebook and writing and coming up with pitches. But yeah. you still got to put gas in the tank and all of that. Um, do you think that well, I felt that, really lucky? Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, I was just gonna ask. Do you think that 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 kind of struggle, even if it's within the the industry, helps mm. then as as an artist and a storyteller for you collectively? Mm, yeah. Well, we were definitely earning our stripes. I think like I'd worked as a hairdresser or as a, like an assistant in hairdressers. I'd worked in Supermax, which was like the Irish version of a McDonald's, and mm -hmm. I'd done all those kind of jobs through college. And then in the 90, in the late 90s, there was kind of this explosion in CD-ROMs for schools and school books were, you know, moving into CD-ROMs and online. And so there was a certain amount of work I was picking up as a freelancer that myself and Paul had been doing. And that was kind of part of the, the start of the studio. We kind of felt that we could, those kind of little, you know, early flash e-cards and different little jobs like that could kind of, help supplement our income while we were trying to make our own film. But really that was the story of like us kind of learning how to tie our shoes, basically. Like we were basically learning how to be a studio, how to work together as a team, how to pitch and, and win contracts. You know, you, you yeah. didn't automatically just get given jobs. There was competition for them. So we were kind of learning everything. We were cutting our teeth in the industry. And it kind of took us doing that as well for, funders to take us seriously for our own personal projects too you know so yeah it was worthwhile they're hard I mean one thing I never really liked doing was commercials I always found them a bit stinky because I kind of felt like while they paid well and there was something kind of buzzy and exciting about them you always ended up finding your like almost like using your powers for evil or something you know yeah. like yeah. your child if only one child buys this 
second rubbish breakfast cereal or whatever, then my work, my my six weeks of work will be worth it. It was always a bit funny, but those are that's it. You know, we live in capitalism. That's how we mm-hmm. pay the bills. You know. Um, and it does then allow for you to become in a position where you run Cartoon Saloon and you are creating yeah. um, what I I believe is one of the best films I have seen in the last 20 years with Wolfwalkers. Um, Holy shit. Thank it you. Is, it is high well, praise, sir. Well, we're going to get into it, but I, right. I wa- I've watched it twice back to back. So I, I when I review things, I tend to go through it once just to uh-huh. get a feel and then go through making notes and stuff. Um, mm mm-hmm. But before we got there, this this idea of combining the passions in the storytelling, I really enjoy um, because it's not just the Irish folklore. It's not just Irish art. There's also messages of environmentalism through a lot of this mm. and mm. a lot of messaging about authority, I would say, too. Mm. That's kind of consistent mm. through the films. Mm. Um, and as I said, I have more specific stuff about Wolfwalkers, but how did that work in and and do you think there is a commonality or duality between talking about uh environmentalism some of these kind of i guess sort of classic coming of age stories and authority figures in our lives it's been a learning it was a learning thing for me and i think what i also realized is there's a certain amount you consciously put in and there's other stuff that just sort of evolves from your life experience because they take a long time to get off the ground and you're writing and rewriting and you know developing them over a long period so whatever i think the director or the main sort of people developing the project are concerned about tends to work its way in and then there's a really interesting thing is that by the time it gets released because you're dealing with mythology and you're dealing with these kind of archetypal sort of fable-like stories, there's often something in the in the zeitgeist that you're picking up on that people, other people pick up on. And you're like, oh, that is what we were talking about, even if we weren't 100, you know. Like, I always joke that we talk about a very Irish things like the church and the English and, the, you know, depression, <laughs> drinking and all this kind of stuff. It's all in there, even if you're trying to make a, you know, a relatively uh, broad appeal family movie, you know. Yeah, and it, I think that also then, though, allows other people to connect with it in their own way, um, right? Because if yeah. it's, there's sort of this the broad theme of authority, which for those of you who grew up with, you know, the church and Northern mm. Ireland, and, and I'm not going to try and explain that in five seconds, yeah. but, sure. you know, the troubles, then yeah. for you, the church and the state are going to play the significant authority role. Whereas for me, authority more ends up landing in terms of, you know, technology maybe and dealing mm-hmm. with mega corporations because that's been yeah. my experience. Yeah. Um, so I think it does then sort of allow for the audience to connect in their own way, uh, which is always, an, I think great storytellers can do that. Whereas for me, when I try and do fiction, I'm like, no, this is the message right here. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. underline it for you and the book's going to be yeah. a page long. Uh, because you might as well just yeah well news writing teaches us to be a little concise so it's be kind underline the end Uh, (laughs) i think there's something yeah i think there's something about there is something about these old stories that you're go digging for the truth you know Mm -hmm. will collins uh one of the screenwriters that we worked with a lot he always talks about you're looking for that painful truth the bit that's more than just you kind of go, oh, I know that, you know. And what's really interesting is if you find that for yourself, other people might find 
that they respond to it as well. If you're authentic enough with the characters, I find other people read into it. And I find that really interesting because it stops being your own and starts being the audiences. And like quite recently with Wolfwalkers, I saw that a lot of like young um, queer people really identified with it. And definitely while we were working on it, it was mentioned a few times that it could be read as a coming out story. But it wasn't something we were leaning into and thinking about all the time. We just said, oh, that's one possible read. But the amount of queer people, at least online, that spoke about it as an allegory, I thought was kind of interesting. Because I think at another time in history, that might have been seen. It might have been just seen as a coming of age or, mm-hmm. you know, found family kind of story. But whatever's going on for the audience, and as I say in the zeitgeist or whatever, tends to kind of filter through. I remember we were working on Secret of Kells. It was all about walls and he was trying to build a wall against the Northmen and he was trying to build the walls. And then how much that became part of the culture, you know, when we ended up having a screening here in Paris one time, uh, the day that Donald Trump was elected. <laughs> I remember oh, wow. having to introduce the movie and kind of saying, you know, walls aren't really a good idea. <laughs> We've been talking about this for a while. You know, so it's really interesting how some of these themes end up, be, you know, coming around and becoming relevant again. Maybe it's a bit depressing too at some point. Uh, well, no, is it depressing? I mean, I you know, you're, it's two of us who were involved in the humanities here. So is it depressing to look at history and try and learn from it? Well, um... I think it's kind of depressing sometimes when you realize that stuff that, like, say, 20 years ago, we were already concerned about and how you kind of the re- it stays relevant. You'd kind of love to imagine that, oh, it's totally irrelevant to talk about these type of things because the world has improved so much. But I guess life doesn't work like that. You know? Well, and, and that's, you know, a, a perfect uh, segue. One of the notes I made, uh, I was typing lines and stuff to myself when I watched the second time for Wolfwalkers is, is the comment from uh, the Lord Protector. What cannot be tamed must be destroyed. And it is something that in my work today, 2021, trying to advocate for wildlife in urban situations and just coexistence Mm -hmm. in the basic premise is Mm -hmm. this concept that if we can't control these animals, we have to get rid of them. Mm -hmm. And it is fascinating to me how easily that commentary slides into what I do currently, how it Mm -hmm. slides into commentary on social issues of other types and how it is very, very fitting uh, for an Irish tale of that era as well. Uh, it, it really speaks to what you were saying of sort of it, it, these classic stories have that reach. Um, yeah. And we're still shaking off all those colonial ideas. I mean, mm-hmm. it's amazing when I think about it, like you, when we read up on it, the idea that, you know, also touching into ideas like speciesism, where the idea that the Irish could be described as animal like or you know this connection sort of made that they were like wolves and they were wild and dangerous and untamable was a way to justify the treatment and the colonial way of, of looking at things so you know it's, it's sadly still very much with us you know well and i think that also then speaks to what you were saying of a, a younger generation then seeing themselves in that that segment yeah. Um, yeah yeah how does that feel for you to to recognize that you know people are seeing the the clear message that comes mm-hmm. through these films but then that there are young people saying i i find myself in this story and it brings me comfort yeah as long as i don't inadvertently say something i didn't mean to say that's maybe negative or whatever i'm delighted because to me that's you're just a torch 
fair. You know, you're just taking it from the last generation and hopefully passing the stories on and reimagining them. And then there'll be another generation that will tell them again, hopefully, and, and it'll have a different meaning because that's what kind of keeps those stories going. There's some kind of, you know, just commonality through the ages that keeps them alive or the parts of them that be, are emphasized at different times in history can be interesting, like where the where the focus is in some of these old stories, but they continue to have a mythic resonance. And so, yeah, you just feel like I love it when audiences find something in it that I didn't particularly intend. I find that just fantastic because it means the story has a life of its own and it's going to continue on after me. You know. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to talk a lot about Wolf Walkers because it's very fitting for us right now, for myself. Um, you, you may or may not be aware in Canada, we have numerous wolf calls on right now in, in really mm. poorly managed attempts to protect other species that the science uh, from the government themselves say is wrong. Um, and we just went through a situation where, uh, about a dozen coyotes were killed in an urban park mm. after a lot of really bad mistakes were made by decision makers for about a year or longer. Um, so for me, the, the message of the, the canids in Wolfwalker was very mm. on point. Um, mm. and I have to address too, the, the role of the father played by Sean Bean, um, mm. who, who is, the, everyone is delightful in this, I, you know, Sean mm. Bean's the name that my audience will know, but. Uh, every performer was just on point um and it's so wonderful to listen to and even then the subtleties and the dialects and things but anyway off topic um i think that storyline or that that plot point that character really resonated with me because as i said you know i lost my father this year so there's a lot of that recollection right there's a lot mm -hmm. of that looking backwards and in myself to see that identity and there's one line from him that it, it just made me start to cry in, in, a, in a good way, not in a bad way, um, where he's arguing about fear um, with his daughter and finally kind of expresses, um, I'm afraid, and he's afraid that you'll end up in a cage, to which she responds, mm. I am in a cage. By the way, spoilers. Uh, I'll put that at the top of the episode, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was a, it is a, a beautiful moment that caused me to make an instant connection with behaviors of my father that mm. had often been associated as negative things. And, and again, you know, it's in myself recognizing the role fear has played in decision-making. Mm. And it's something I'm very aware of with an anxiety condition or disorder. Mm. But then I'm also able to draw a connection to some of the other characters um, as sort of the, you know, the directors um, and producers is there a, a conscious attempt to say who is this character and how are they going to be challenged or how are they going to confront themselves? Because I think that's one of the things about Wolf Walkers that I really took away is every character had to in some way confront themselves um, yeah. and who they are, which was it's not something you often get to see sort of across the board this way. Yeah, it was an interesting journey developing the project. And I think a lot of the time myself and Ross as middle-aged guys got a little bit sidelined into thinking about the dad character, you know, and it's fun to impersonate Sean Bean while you're drawing caricatures <laughs> of him and, you know, imagine things for him to say and stuff. And yeah. we had to kind of keep, well, well, he ended up kind of having to serve the function of being a kind of loving antagonist to Robin, you know, yes. and that she kind of completes her arc about, midway through the movie and really is able to embrace this aspect of herself that she's just discovering and then she has to kind of drag him 
along because like a lot of us as you get older you get a bit kind of calcified into ways of seeing the world it's a bit harder for you to change than it is for a young person you know so I suppose that's what we were kind of looking at that that, that was a key relationship in early drafts that kind of got moved along as we realized that the core was the two girls and we had to keep them at the core and their journey at the core and then dad you know Sean Beans we called him Bill Goodfellow even though he's never referred to I think as Bill and I think his his character arc is just that little bit more extended over a longer thing and I suppose that fear like that way of parenting maybe it's something I've been working out myself too I mean I'm a grandfather now and it's really interesting for me to think about you know how through these movies I've been working through a lot of the the mistakes or the, the loving mistakes, the well-intentioned mistakes you make as a parent, you know, mm-hmm. and then also just as a, as a person in society, how we're so reluctant to change and why we're so reluctant to change, you know. And that, that theme of change and reluctance and then the connection to environmentalism, again, mm-hmm. in, in I think all of your products or all of your films is mm-hmm. very apparent. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is that connection. Uh, an element of it that I, I well, I'll, I'll just say outright, I think the animation is absolutely stunning. The artwork blew me away. The change in perspective from uh, people to animal as well, uh, that world felt magical to, to get to see for a moment and you didn't overuse it. Um, it's almost like the reverse effect of uh, Bruce the shark, right? Like it's not there, it's there. And you know it's there, and it's exciting when it's there. But because it's not there all the time, it becomes even yeah. more exciting. Yeah, um, exactly. It's funny we we're just talking about that today. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that's it as well. Like you want to keep the grace notes, don't you? And with a visual language that you can have in hand-drawn animation, that we kind of made it our mission to really push hand-drawn animation as far as we could in terms of what you could do to be expressive with it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and you also have to. You know keep your powder dry too because we're still making these on relatively small budgets and stuff so you have to sort of pick your battles and decide oh, when yeah. you're going to really you know go for it and stuff but no thanks a lot i love when people notice or recognize the stuff that we're doing with the visual language because sometimes i get frustrated that animation as an art form maybe in short films and festivals you see real experimentation but up until the last few years a lot of animation was kind of following this route of trying to be as much like live action as possible to be taken seriously yeah. where actually animation can do a whole lot more than live action if you're you know brave with it well and i think you know a great example and i commented on this i think within three seconds of seeing it um and then noted it throughout the film is the wolves so there's the wolf walker wolves who tend to have more distinction to them and are separate but then the other wolves when they move it is a single fluid motion Mm. um i think the other time that comes to mind is the film from like the 1980s uh the last unicorn when they run away but that that implies so much about a it's just beautiful and beautiful to look Mm -hmm. at but then it also implies so much about how wolves actually move in the wild and that they do have this cool kind of they're apart but they're always together somehow yeah, and I think we kind of, we moved away from pure anatomical correctness or, you know, whatever, because we wanted to kind of be expressive and to kind of show that, you know, the army were moving like little clockwork kind of mm-hmm. 
figures and they were very stiff and you know segmented and that the wolves were kind of more flowing and all yeah that they became kind of like a force of nature or whatever in themselves so all that kind of stuff is the fun stuff you can do with animation and hopefully it helps reinforce our theme of you know the the artificial order being imposed by the the colonizing forces and then the more natural but maybe a little bit dangerously wild you know rep what's represented in the forest and yeah, playing with those contrasts visually so that we can talk about those themes in the story itself. Yeah, and it allows it allows it to then kind of permeate through the mind as well, because it's not you're not being told directly. Yeah, you know, watch the wolves. You just happen yeah. to watch the wolves and it, it, mm. it becomes part of the art of it. And another element of that that jumped out to me was the um, and, and I, I asked a few people I know with degrees, hoping they'd have the right words. But I think it's. it's <laughs> Is it the medieval style tapestries that some yeah. of those that, that sort of skewed perspective? We were playing with woodblock prints. We were trying okay. to see like what could we do that had that feeling of a woodblock print, but also that if we use geometry like that, could we kind of reflect the worldview of the Puritans that they're much yes. more sort of black and white and segmented and everything is kind of um it's like when we looked at maps of the country. The, everywhere that they mapped sort of became all these squared off and named. And so that was kind of how it was. And it went from being like just wild, nobody knew what was there to sort of being under control because they'd mapped it. And a lot of that, those shapes, it was, that's why we kind of put the, the town kind of flattened out behind because that's all been mapped and colonized. And then the forest is still wild and kind of not not fully kind of controlled yet you know that's well, visual yeah, language yeah it, it really is and it definitely comes across as a this is now distinct and different and for me mm. I, I grew up without any religion but it makes me think of old religious uh, uh monolithic yeah. type structures and things like that which is the stark yeah. contrast again to the, the majesty and magic of the forest and the natural world yeah i think it's really interesting that culturally you can't escape like i mean i'm very lapsed catholic but like because i from northern ireland originally and grew up in ireland and everything like that all that iconography and all that imagery and stuff just it just permeates the way you see the world and how you think about the world and stuff so yeah definitely and it's been a spiritual journey as well these three movies have been a spiritual journey for me kind of exploring where my spirituality lands now that organized religion has sort of fallen into the backdrop of my the way i think about it you know oh absolutely it's funny. Uh, it's funny that you mentioned the last unicorn there too because it's one of those movies that's super dark and i realized that like i'm 44 right so i grew up in the 80s with like secret and name mm -hmm. dark crystal labyrinth like these kids movies the black cauldron your last unicorn those movies like were what i understood as kids movies but if you look at them now they never get made now like oh, they're no. quite dark and they play with really dark imagery and mythic themes and stuff like that and i think it's really coming you know people kind of say our stuff is really dark but i think it's because i grew up with those kind of movies as flawed as they might be now in retrospect there was a tone or a feeling off them that i i kind of like to try and remember yeah um and Without i and i am nostalgia. sure there is a university course on that that theme <laughs> or there are books on it because i i'm fascinated by the the detail art can get into uh looking yeah. at that kind of thing part of that though and uh i thought maybe you would be able to sort of summarize was the inclusion of cromwell as the lord mm. protector and then mm. the whole concept of irish wolves and mm. you were able to tell 
what are truly disturbing violent tales in a way that did not necessarily come across as disturbing violent tales. So the, the impact of them and the emotional resonance of this British person coming and telling the Irish people who to be yeah. and how to live and to try and yeah. control nature is there, but it's not the brutal history. Yeah, it could be really dark. And I think in live action or if we played it, and I think we wanted to stay in the realm of, yeah, like there's a certain tone that I think illustration and hand-drawn animation has to naturally that allows you to kind of talk about these complex things in a way that's a bit more palatable mm -hmm. than if you were doing it like hyper-realistically. But we did at one point back away from Colin and Cromwell on screen. I think anybody who knows their history will know it's Cromwell. Yeah. And we definitely thought of him as Oliver Cromwell, but he kind of just became this figure that represented that kind of colonial worldview that was so common back then. Um and, uh, you know, I, I recommend people look that up because that's an important part of world history um, and, frankly, part of North American history in a way, too. Yeah. What I found really interesting was that it was so common to what was happening in North America. And just before we started recording, we were talking about, the you know, the, the colonization of North America and that, that yeah. mindset, you know, all over the world in Australia as well, like indigenous people everywhere sort of suffered from this mindset that, you know, and the thing about Simon McBurney, who played Lord Protector, He's an English fellow, but I think he's got Scottish background. But he said that he's a very dangerous villain or a very dangerous person because he's a true believer. He really yes. believed he was doing the good thing. He was doing God's work. And that's the most dangerous type of person. Like any kind of, you know, shifty character who's just an opportunist, you know, they're not quite as dangerous as the true believers because they're really scary because they think that what they're doing is for the good of everyone. And, you know, they won't let anything get in their way of that. Uh, like going to a rocket in space while the world melts, but we're not going to name any names. Um, <laughs> now, on that note, the environmental messages, um, it is very clearly something you are passionate about, something mm. that comes through in the films. Uh, do you see opportunities to, if not highlight problems or address problems, look at solutions as well through this kind of storytelling yeah. and that unlocking of the creative mind and looking at history and folk tales yeah and it's hard as well because ultimately it's a tragedy because you know we end the movie you know for for these characters at that moment in time things are better but we all know the wolves are not there's no wolves left in ireland and uh, we lost so much of our woodlands to build the british navy or whatever and you know, there's a lot of sad history after that. And so we, we're always trying to dose it and, and, you know, figure out how we could tell a story that was compelling in and of itself, but also opening up this, you know, the conversation maybe between parents and kids about the, this stuff and the environmental stuff. I mean, it just becomes more and more relevant. Like as, as the years go by, I mean, I was always a little bit of a sort of, you know, hippie and environmentalist or whatever. And Ross as well, who co-directed with me, we're both, we both grew up, you know, very concerned about, you know, species going extinct. And a lot of that stuff was why we wanted to tell this story, because we kind of realized that we'd learn, as we learned about how Ireland had been so associated with wolves, that had even been called Wolfland, and the fact that we'd grown up never really thinking about wolves as part of Irish culture, we'd lost so much of ourselves. You know, we'd lost so much more than just the wolves whenever they were exterminated. And I think that's what we kind of wanted to speak to as well. You know, that there's a there's a huge loss for humans as well whenever we're destroying. I mean, not just like that we get sick and there's pandemics and pollution and all that often climate change and all of that but even just on a very human societal level there's a connection to nature that we kind of are losing more and more as we kind of 
imagine that we're somehow civilizing and putting order on things, we're actually just losing an awful lot of, um, yeah, a lot of what we need in order to find solutions. Like I read this book, Braiding Sweetgrass. Did you ever hear that book? I, I have had that recommended to me by three different people. Yeah, yeah, you should read it because it's a really nice book about how you don't have to sort of throw out modern science and all that kind of progress. Like we don't have to become total like Luddites about it. But she is able to, Robin Wall Kimmerer is like, she's like a biologist, I think as well as an indigenous person who understands all the indigenous beliefs about, you know, working with nature and that kind of thinking and that kind of synergy that we tried to show between the English girl and her dad and the wolf walkers, which are like the oldest, most Irish indigenous people, that sort of coming together at the end, I think is the only way we can go forward is if we can kind of look at indigenous wisdom and indigenous life ways and ways of seeing the world and seeing the environment as something that we're part of it's not separate to us and then bring all that we've learned from science and western thought and all of that kind of stuff and if we can bring those two things together maybe there's some hope for grandchildren <laughs> i don't know, you know well yeah and it's it's scary but i i do think you know that this kind of storytelling is also motivating and inspirational um and one of the questions from the audience i had was about uh the irish people's past or sorry, the Irish people from the past viewing their connection to the environment mm -hmm. and how that can translate now to modern era. Um, so I feel like yeah. you, you've kind of hit that, but at the time, was there, so we're, I mean, we're looking 1650 is, is the era in which this story takes mm -hmm. place. Was there a current awareness, do you think, at that time, or was it kind of separated by then? It's hard to say, like, I mean, we kind of go on a shopping trip through history and folklore and stuff when we're researching these things and definitely the stuff we drew out, which might be, you know, you're always a victim of kind of looking at things through the lens of a modern audience. But there might have been a sense that the Celtic church had become this kind of um, synergistic kind of mixture of pagan beliefs that were very connected to the land and were much more kind of matriarchal and much more connected to like naming you know, really having respect for land and understanding things in a, in a way that was being lost because when things got renamed with this kind of, you know, odd, anglified version of things, we lost a certain connection to the countryside and to the landscape that we'd had prior to that. And we'd also had this kind of belief system about how we related to the forest and to the wolves and to the all the fauna and everything. And that was all being lost as we kind of, rush to adopt this new English worldview and this other point, another way of looking at the world as something that could be owned and controlled. And, you know, so I don't know. I, I think there was wisdom. There's obviously wisdom in all indigenous cultures because, you know, we, we, we were like that for much longer than the way we've been lately. And when we look back into it, there was a lot of lovely stuff in Irish folklore and in Irish even legends and myths and stuff that we could see just like in Braden Sweetgrass, where she looks back into her own Native American um, kind of culture to find solutions. I think there's stuff there. And I mean, I suppose that's the job of storytellers to look at and draw out what we need to move forward and leave behind the stuff that maybe was, you know, not so healthy. Well, and that you just segued into the next one, which was Walkers okay. does. Yeah, it's great when you. It saves me a little bit of effort. Like five, <laughs> five seconds of brain power to force a segue when you do it for me. It's great. 
I hope it's okay. I'm just kind of thinking off the top of my head. But uh, it's okay. No, it's it's great. Uh, so Making Wolf Walkers sense, yeah. does a wonderful job giving younger viewers credit. How difficult is it creating a story for a younger audience that deals with important topics like feminism, standing up to authoritarian rulers, and caring for animals and the environment? We, yeah, we take it pretty seriously. We show very rough cuts of the storyboards at different times to young kids. Like mm -hmm. my wife teaches part-time in the Irish language school. And so she has kind of eight-year-olds, eight to 10-year-old kids in her class. And so we very often show them the movie. And it's interesting just to sit with them and see where they're getting it and where they're not getting it. And then afterwards, having a chat with them to see what they took from it and what they didn't. And we'd often tweak and rework the story to make sure that they were getting it and enjoying it and not bored because you know the worst thing is for it to feel like edutainment or something and yeah. you know that's kind of like eating your broccoli watch this movie <laughs> so you kind of do have to you have to keep it entertaining and interesting for kids and kids are very honest you know they won't kind of they won't kind of sugarcoat if they don't like it or if they don't get something they'll, they'll tell you so they're they're really good they're the they're the notes i care about yeah uh, and in terms of just being a creator are there specific things that you draw inspiration from or, or are you the kind of creative mind that just you sit down with a notebook and kind of dump your brain and then go back through it? Like I've, I'm an Ernest Hemingway fan in the write drunk edit sober theory when I'm writing <laughs> yeah. and, and I'm not admitting to drinking during work if anyone's listening, but it, it is the process of just putting it all down on paper and then going back through and restructuring it. Uh, as opposed mm. to trying to figure out everything I want to do and say in advance. Yeah. Right? So it's just, it's get the words on the page and then put them in the right order. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think there's that. Like, I mean, Will, when he's, when we're like, we, Ross and I would have worked out a rough story and had themes and done a good bit of research. But when Will starts writing, you know, he has to do what he calls a vomit draft where mm -hmm. he puts down everything into like a big, or we call it the fat baby sometimes because it's full of everything we love, but it needs to slim down. You know, it's got, <laughs> it's got everything that in there. And there's always yeah. too many. There's always too many ideas. It's always a process of editing and refining and all through the project. It's a big part of the creative challenges is refining and editing. But yeah, just getting it all down there first and kind of bleh, getting it out and then seeing what you have is much better than kind of. Yeah, for me anyway, that's a way to work. Another thing I kind of look for early on is kind of mythic moments that kind of say like if I can see an image in my head or if I can sketch an image in those early story meetings that I feel says everything like there was a I remember really hitting on a moment where Robin's dad is holding on to her so tight that she has to kind of leave her body behind yeah. so she has to become a wolf and leave her human body behind and he's held on so tight to his daughter that he's left with this lifeless you know, yeah, body yeah, in, yeah. in his arms. And I thought, oh, that's really mythic. That says everything about their relationship, at least at that point. Um, and that's something that we could hold on to. So you'd have these kind of, you know, like a clothesline with pegs on it. You yeah. have a few of these mythic moments that, you know, like Robin getting bit by the wolf and seeing the world through different eyes. Like the minute she got bit, we knew we wanted to, the way the point of view of the character to literally change so like though that was another mythic moment that we had in mind so you kind of have those i suppose to hang on to mm -hmm. as you're writing and rewriting you know those in that, that those moments have to happen in there so you do have some kind of structure before you vomit <laughs> it all down on the page yes but other than that yeah it is it's a process of putting it down and refining and putting it down and refining. 
and, and hoping that you're getting closer to what you originally intended and not wandering off into a totally different story, which can happen too. Oh yeah. I, I have done that many, many times in yeah. news writing even. Um, wow. Because sometimes that's the way the story goes, right? Like just as you mm -hmm. get more information, all of a sudden you realize, oh, we're going in this direction now. Um, yeah, I found that really interesting too, because myself and Ross realized as we, and I think I, I felt this about nearly all of them. Maybe Song of the Sea the least, because that was that was very clear in my head what I wanted to talk about. We didn't wander too far. We just kind of did too much and we had to refine out. But there's a few stories in Wolf Walkers we could have told. And we could have told it from a few different characters' points of view. And we could have satisfied screenwriting rules and had a different message. You know, like there is there's another story that you might have wandered into if you were just following the rules of what would be a nice, tidy story science kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so yeah, it can be that can be a really interesting part. Yeah, honestly, writing is the most difficult. It, I have to say, story is without a doubt the most difficult part of the process for me. You know? Yeah, I, uh, I never feel like I know what I'm doing. And when I start another film, I'm sure I'm going to feel like all sweaty and scared again. <laughs> I just got away with it three times, and now I have to. Well, and it's <laughs> and up to the I, I will never stop being amazed by the um imposter syndrome felt mm -hmm. by brilliant minds all over the world it, it just yeah. it astounds me because and again i look at this and this is a, it's a masterpiece it should have won the awards it was on <laughs> um and it's one i'm going we're, to be recommending yeah. and uh you know talking with people about for screeners and things like that it's just it's so good and uh an element of it i i think is that as I said earlier, each of the characters kind of has their own world that's existing, mm -hmm. and it plays off the idea that everyone's at the center of their own story. Yes. Um, yeah. Right? And that's something I, I, I think about when I'm in a shopping mall, and it kind of gives me a wave of panic, because that's too many stories around me right now. <laughs> uh, right? It's just, it's the influx of what's everyone else thinking right now? And then or if you're brain... in like a huge city, and you're like, whoa, suddenly people yeah. seem like ants, and you then you have to remember that each one of them is the hero of their own little narrative, and not just like a you know it's, exactly. it's strange it's strange how we can be both at once but just to your point about like the imposter syndrome i've been talking about that a lot now because i'm i'm in residency with other writers and artists different mm. disciplines you know just a guy you're writing an opera for example and yeah. we all have that sort of feeling and i think there was a lovely i don't know i think it was a ted talk i saw with I think it was the woman who wrote like Eat, Pray, Love or something like that. But she talked about this idea that genius wasn't something you were, but something that was like a spirit that could pass through you. So you just have to show up to do the work. And that's mm -hmm. your bit. And then hopefully, if you're lucky, you keep showing up to do the work and maybe genius might pass through you mm -hmm. and go off to somebody else, you know. So you never kind of get a big head thinking, oh, I'm a genius. But you do know that if you do the work, it might that, yeah. you know, the, like the idea of a genius being more like a genie or a spirit or something rather than a person, I think is very interesting, you know, and because that shows that the imposter syndrome isn't coming from nowhere. It's coming from the fact that all you really have is whatever talent you might have and whatever skills and discipline you've learned. And then it's just not in your hands. You just have to show up with that and earnestly try your best and then hopefully you'll get it. But just never know <laughs> that's what's yeah. terrifying and great about you know um it's I, I think that's true of creation period whatever it is you make right like i yeah. do craft stuff and i started yeah. enjoying it the moment i went i don't care if other people like mm -hmm. it it's fun for me to do
and now it's just fun. there's there's no more self-judgment uh yeah. on it. i can just do it and then put it in a box and be done with it or take it out at a fair or something if i need to um yeah but it's i've been no doing a lot of sitting get you i've been doing a lot of life drawing which is really interesting because i've been learning and learning anatomy and i thought i was pretty decent but during lockdown i really went for it i bought a skeleton and i got a teacher and started really working on it but now here in paris i've just gone to like real life drawing class like with actual models in the bazaar and rather than you know studying from photos and videos and things like that and suddenly i was terrified i was like whoa here i am i actually have to do it but the months of kind of study and craft and getting to understand how everything works allowed me to just work through the drawings and then only that evening could i look at them and see what was good or bad but while i was doing them i was yeah. just relying on all that you know like driving a car you know you're kind of relying on those instincts that you yeah. know when to shift gears if you think about it too much you'll stall the car but if you kind of feel how the car is going you just follow that and it's only afterwards you can kind of go oh i i went from there to there you know based on those skills i sort of yeah. internalized yeah, yeah that's a, that's a great way of putting it and again that's i write a lot of articles and blogs and stuff and i was in print news mm -hmm. and that's what i did every day and i i get asked about it and it's hard to express sometimes because that's how it feels now there's there's a yeah. mechanical comfort with the process. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right? So it's oh, I know what I'm doing. I don't know if it'll be good, but I can just yeah. kind of do it now without having to list the steps or so the example of yeah. you know, get in the car and check all three mirrors and mm. turn on the engine. Like it no, you get in the car, you turned on, you look around, you go. Um, I guess it's like musicians, they practice the scale so much they're not thinking what note are they playing at what time. They're just kind of going yeah. with what feels right. Yeah, then you have to go back and write it down, but what? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's the worst. Having a conversation with someone, then they go, did you write that down, what you just said? <laughs> oh, uh, one element of this, and I, again, I don't know if this was intentional, or I think it's maybe part of your style, uh, and it's a great place for us to, to, to sort of wrap a bit, was the combination of visual themes and storytelling methods. So in watching wolf walkers there are moments where it is comic book slides <laughs> uh there are moments where the perspective changes from 69 down to mm. you know, something much more widescreen or tree or yeah, or, yeah. yeah. Uh, like there's but there's various ways the format shifts a little bit and we talked about mm. those old uh the, the woodprints um yeah backgrounds yeah. I, I found that very appealing in that it kept my attention and it kept me sort of, oh, something's changing. But mm. I'm also wondering thematically if that's how, as we talk about the environment, as we talk about wildlife, as we talk about traditional ecological knowledge and science and everything else, that is part of that general theme. I mean, it is literally in the story in that when people mm. come together, they are able to succeed. But yeah. the story feels more complete to me because it incorporates different visual themes and mm. and uh visual tools is is that you know also a, a microcosm of how do we deal with this great big world we're in right now that's interesting yeah i think i think for me like the the, the, the thought out logic for it that ross and i thought of was that when we were using split screens and stuff we were trying to show how you know in the city people are sort of feeling like in boxes and they're mm -hmm. thinking like that and then when we opened out the vista or maybe let the edge of the page start to show where the paint is running off that sort of felt like there was more possibility you know yeah. you weren't as framed in and then we sort of were thinking about in comic books how you can play with the shape 
or in medieval art, even, you know, the triptychs and stuff, the shape or the frame itself can mm-hmm. say something about what's going on in the picture. And I think that's something, I mean, obviously you can do that in live action, but, you know, it's something that feels more organic and hand-drawn. And I do think that there's a, for me anyway, I can't, there, there's stories that I can't imagine telling any other way than in hand-drawn because it is a language. And those kind of things that you're talking about, they are, again, they're kind of intuitive. You try them out, you play with them, then you become conscious of them because you have to decide and say, yeah, we're doing that. Communicate that all down through to the, the hierarchy of departments um, and, and try not to lose the stuff that happens spontaneously in storyboarding as you go through, or, or maybe even improve on it. Um, rather than preserve it. Like sometimes the background artist might add a, a line that has a feeling of aggression to it around the corners of the screen. And then you're like, oh, that makes the whole image seem more aggressive or so on. So yeah, you're trying to you're trying to kind of always play between the instinct and writing it down. You're kind of going between jazz and then writing it down, aren't you, all the time? Yeah. You know? So I wonder then, is that, you know, is is that mindset of let's play some jazz and write down the good bits? Is is that you know way the way we move forward? In what way? In the well, broadest with, way about yeah, the world? In saving the world and saving ourselves and trying to be nicer, kinder people, or or whatever our our goals are. Um, well, as, this as we go this the uh, this uh, rule based, uh, you know, strict. Uh, way morality way of thinking about things hasn't really gotten us into a good place so maybe <laughs> maybe we should try a bit of jazz and a bit of yeah experimentation and sort of um yeah sort of conscious um weeding and pruning of the way that we live yeah i think it's happening i think there's people that are at the cutting edge of thinking about this stuff and then there's just society in general and i kind of see you know consciousness raising in general and i just hope it it catch it, it doesn't take too long that we can get there in time. If you want to check out Wolf Walkers in Canada, it's currently available to stream on Apple Plus. Find out more about Wolf Walkers and other Cartoon Saloon films and projects at cartoonsaloon.ie. Tom can be found on Twitter at Tom Moore and Instagram at Tom9769. Remember, that's Tom with two M's. This was an awesome opportunity, and I can't thank Tom and Cartoon Saloon enough for allowing me to have this great conversation. I also want to thank Christopher and Cynthia again for helping arrange the early steps. So check out Not About Lumberjacks, a short fiction podcast that may have voices you recognize at nolumberjacks.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Links, as always, are available in the show notes and at defenderradio.com. And of course, thank you for listening. This show is only possible because of you, so please do rate and review on Apple Podcasts or share a post about the show to help even more people listen. You can find me on Instagram and TikTok at Howie Michael and on Facebook on the Defender Radio podcast page. Defender Radio is produced by me, Michael Howie, and the Fur Bearers, a nonpartisan charitable wildlife protection organization. Learn more at thefurbearers.com. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bears, reminding you to be kind and to stay informed and stay strong. Defender Radio.